why do you get this kind of idea of Jews as the money takers and the money spinners? When you dismiss the discussions, you get the conspiracy theorists and you kind of, you can breathe the anti-Semitism. Oh, how did I grow up? Uh, interesting first question. I grew up in Melbourne um, in a kind of distinctively, I suppose, middle class family. Um, uh, I have two siblings. Um, I we were Jewish. I went to a well, particularly um, observant. I went to an Anglican school in Melbourne, um, where I got educated. I was quite nerdy. I did a lot of like tech and media and IT things at school, and then oh, yeah, went on to university in, in Melbourne. And when did you become interested in politics or free market philosophy, or how would you describe? what you're interested in. Yeah, I mean, definitely interested in politics, definitely interested in kind of philosophy, from macrophilosophy, economics. I mean, it kind of, it kind of, yeah, definitely did come when I was growing up. I had this, uh, I grew up kind of very much, probably in a similar period to you, with uh, the, amongst the, the latter years of the Howard government, it was all this time of kind of relative economic prosperity. I have these memories of kind of uh, my father sitting down to watch kind of some of, it must have been some of Pitigasso's later budgets as they were announcing tax cuts. He would always say he ran a, a small business, kind of a medium-sized business. He'd always be very happy that you know the government in this kind of boom economic period is able to cut taxes, return more money to people, and and that was something from the other days. I thought you know he's hardworking, he's creating something, um, he's employing people, and I got this kind of broad sense that the, the government wasn't an enabler of that, but the government often got in the way. So the government often got in the way. You know, with payroll taxes uh, that were too high or additional workplace regulations, all these um, different issues that would come up as problems within that. And then a little bit later, um, I suppose I, I was, I think probably came on YouTube. I started, I don't quite know how I found it, but came across some kind of more philosophical discussions about politics and economics. Uh, and in particular, Milton Friedman, who does these great kind of free to choose um, documentaries uh, on, on which you can find. He, he did... Um, with PBS in the US in, in the 80s and then also had an associated book that's kind of a very easy introduction to, to free market ideas and, and I was probably about hooked uh, from the age of 15 or 16 and, and thought uh, this is how the world should, should run, that people should be as free as possible to make decisions within their own lives, be it in their social lives uh, with, with who they want to love or spend their time with or associate with or alternatively in their economic lives as well, that people should be free to exchange resources and, and trade with each other in the process, they're going to make themselves better off. Um, and not that there isn't necessarily no role for government. In fact, Milton Friedman is not a kind of anarchist in any way. He was very much someone who allocated some kind of redistributed welfare state, who said that you know, there should be public support for education, or that should be through vouchers, people can choose their own schools. Um, so, so kind of a, a minimal role for state or lesser role for state and a more role for individuals to be free to associate and, and better themselves. Was YouTube even a thing when you were 15? It must have been in the, you're right, it must have been in the early days of YouTube. I'm not that old, I'm only, I'm only 29. I think you, what was YouTube was established yeah, in like 2004, uh, yeah, so 2005, I think. Okay. So, so it, was, it was, probably, was probably early YouTube. It's probably before the annoying ad you constantly got on YouTube these days. It was a long period of... Uh, just being able to access all this different content. And I think there was a lot less concern about copyright then as well. So you could access a lot more things even um, compared to these days. So you could just you know access all sorts of different um, you know, political and economic stuff. Maybe not the most exciting thing, but I think it was around the same time as well. I, I set up uh, my own kind of app 
development company was doing a whole bunch of nerdy things there and that had to pay taxes on all that income. That was a pain. It wasn't that much income. It was kind of like a McDonald's level salary income. It wasn't um, millions, millions and millions of dollars. But it kind of, yeah, it was my first introduction to um, what it meant to have anything to do with business. How did that come about? Um, it came about, I, I developed something for like way too much depth for a school assignment where I created an application that could email you when someone replied to you on Twitter. This was in the very early days of Twitter before Twitter had this functionality. And then subsequently we made an app that could send you a push notification when someone replied to you on Twitter again before Twitter introduced that functionality. I mean, I work with a few people I basically met on Twitter and who were kind of of a similar age, I think they were like 14 or 15 around the time, um, who we thought it would be cool to set that up because Apple had just announced this functionality. Um, and then we created a few other apps as well that then subsequently sold this little company um, to a British app startup. Uh, it wasn't a particularly you know, big or successful um, enterprise, but it was kind of interesting and fun. Yeah, but it's just the fact that you were doing that. Like, I didn't even know Twitter was a thing then as well. Yeah, I, me- I remember uh, it was, it wasn't, it, Twitter felt like a lot less kind of aggressive, a lot less political, a lot more people just kind of saying random things, exploring ideas, um, you, the ability to kind of build like a kind of little social network of people around Twitter that I had at the time. Um, you know, if, my, if my parents are paying much attention, they're probably quite suspicious of who were all these internet friends. But, um, it also it all seemed relatively innocent at that point. Um, and there were a lot of other people kind of of a similar age who, or, you know, a little bit older, uh, who were kind of interested in, in all these kind of things. So were friends in school interested in similar stuff? I'm just like, how did you even discuss? Because I assume I went to a school like around the corner from you and my and I'm the same age. But I'm like, it was MSN and MySpace and then Facebook came. Like, I don't think I'd heard of Twitter until I moved to the US and I was 22. Yeah, I don't think... And I don't know any, like, I don't, none of my friends, like, I don't know anyone from Australia who uses Twitter. I mean, I did also have MySpace uh, and Facebook and all the other apps as well. But yeah, I, I don't think I knew anyone at school who was on, on Twitter, or maybe like one or two other people at school who were on Twitter. It wasn't what, I think you're right, it was not a, it was not a particularly popular platform. I mean, I don't think Twitter even to these, these days is not a particular popular platform unless you do something very specific and kind of tech or politics or maybe journalism the main thing it's certainly bigger in the UK and the US and in Australia I don't think it's ever been a, a, as major a platform um, obviously it, it lives freely in the minds of a lot of people as as a very important social media network but comparatively speaking it's actually I think much smaller than Facebook or TikTok uh, or any kind of video game social platform that you might think of so what was your dad's business uh, so he made he made software so for accountants so kind of helping people manage their uh, kind of company management as well and registration issues as well as um, uh, superannuation management for people who manage their own super. And would he come home and then talk about what it's like running a business or how the government impact and like wanted you to be interested or you were just hearing things and picking up on it. I think it was probably a bit of bit of a mixture of both. Like he he talked about you know, things that were going on with his with his business and and little specific bits and pieces and issues that were going on with staff and just kind of the general 
uh, rigmarole of, of trying to operate a business. Um, and it would yeah, certainly come up as, as an issue in particular, things like you know, tax or labour regulations as being an issue um, that could p- cause a lot of problems when, when you're trying to manage a, a kind of smaller to medium-sized business. And so were they encouraging of you starting your own business? Not particularly, not particularly encouraging or like pushy or anything. I kind of, yeah, they didn't tell me to. I, I kind of just did it with my own accord and they were supportive and, and, and helpful at times as well. But uh, there was no sense that, you know, that that's what they expected me or wanted me to do. My older brother also ended up kind of starting a few small digital tech businesses. So maybe for me, it was kind of quite normal thing to do rather than something that was quite weird and abnormal, which I suppose in retrospect is a lot weirder and, and more abnormal than a lot of other people growing up at, at that time. No, it's not. I just think it's really good because, I don't know, Melbourne just doesn't seem to be like the most entrepreneurial place, especially for young very like I just haven't really heard a story definitely there's a lot of stories of people like working hard you know people get jobs like I feel like that's the normal thing to get a job at 15 and work hard but to make something yourself that's like really cool yeah it's certainly I mean it's only not necessarily that common anyway you could say but at the same time I remember we did an interesting survey back when I was at the the IPA in Melbourne where we asked was particular survey I think of 18 to 24-year-olds, asking them about, about a whole bunch of different attitudes. One of the questions, which was quite stunning, was, um, would you ever like to start up your own business someday? I think something like 60% of people expressed an interest in starting up their own business, which is, which I think in some respects is, would be quite a big generational change. Because I think you're right that the, the way people have you know, operated in, in recent history, at least, is this idea that you get a, get a degree... Uh, after school and then you go work for some large kind of corporate company and, and, and build your career along along that path. It's much less common to think of kind of wanting to start your own business or, or being wanting to be your own boss. But there does seem to be a lot of appeal amongst younger people not to have to work in that kind of corporate environment, to have a lot more kind of choice about their, their career and, and therefore wanting to start a business. How often that actually translates into starting a business? I mean, in some respects, it's much easier just to start some little hobby thing when you're um, when you're still in school than it is to commit yourself full time to a business when you dependent on an income and uh, and you have to actually has to pay its own way. Those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. And so, what did you learn from that experience? Um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. I mean, eventually, we 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 stopped doing it just because we. Uh, and I wanted to focus on doing well in school and in my final year of school, finishing VCE and getting into university. And I suppose I, I was attracted back to the more traditional path. Um, and it wasn't particularly, it wasn't enough to sustain a career on that, on that path um, alone. I also was interested in politics and upsetting politics rather than kind of sticking down the technology line. Um, I learned a bit about kind of communications and, and trying to sell a product learn a bit about you know how difficult it is to kind of be part of a team of people kind of with slightly different preferences and having different uh, you know discussions and arguments and and getting things done um, learn a bit of technical skills you know to have developing certain helping to develop certain products I was doing a lot of kind of website things that have been subsequently quite helpful and useful to understand and know when I've been involved in in political things 
uh, and, and digital communications. So that side of it learned quite a bit. Learned a bit about um, kind of journalism and journalists and remember writing press releases for uh, our app releases and subsequently done a lot more work in, in press. So definitely kind of started there uh, on the other side and the upside of things. And what did the money mean to you that you were making from it? I mean, the money's nice. It's always nice to have a little bit more money. I mean, it wasn't, I just remember it wasn't a lot of money. As in, if I think if we had worked at McDonald's on an hourly basis, we, we probably would have earned more money or, or, or just as much money. Um, so in the end, it wasn't necessarily, I, I, we were hopeful that it could have something highly profitable, but it, it didn't end up being anything particularly profitable. It just ended up being something that was more of a learning experience and, and a valuable life experience rather than something that was... You know, yeah. going to set us up for our lives with you know you you read the stories about some like kid who sold an app for for millions of, of dollars to some U.S. I don't know venture capital firm or something and obviously that's that's a rarity it's not necessarily the norm you know there's a long tail of uh, you know unsuccessful or relatively you know financially unsuccessful um, efforts to, to build a business and that wasn't the motivator for you it was just that you met these people on Twitter you had a really cool idea you wanted to build something yeah i think it's both it's always a bit of both right you have an idea that you know this is this will be a nice way to we, we can sell our products because there's an app store we can make a little bit of money but also that you know there's something kind of fun and interesting to do um and see what we can do and see what we can build and um create and it's always kind of, i mean there was always always think back to us something quite appealing about just being able to like make something just have have something that's a product that that's being created well what i do these days in, in politics is a lot more the product is ideas that are, you know, kind of like an opinion piece or something. It's not quite the same as having an app on your phone. You can say, oh, I made that up or I was a part of the team who made that up and, and that does something interesting and cool and different. Mm-hmm. Were the, was the team... Okay, sorry, last question. <laughs> I'm just so interested because this is not what I was doing when I was at school. Um, was the team also like 14-year-olds? Yeah, like, yeah. We were, all, we, were all, we were all in high school. We were all in high school. In Australia? Yeah. Okay. I actually, we, they were both in Sydney and I was Melbourne, so we were, we were putting remote working uh, way before it became popular. Are you still friends with them? Uh, I think we might like follow each other on Twitter, but we haven't spoken in years now. Yeah. Okay. And then how did you, because I found this article you wrote for the ABC when you when you're 17. You found my first article. And <laughs> I just love it because it's about alcohol. And it's kind of saying, okay, this is an issue. Like, there's people just drunk all over Melbourne. But... <laughs> You're making Melbourne sound like a very trashy place. The go- but the government... It's not the government's role to say what substances we can and can't have. Which, this is the whole conversation I had with Chris Snowden. I'm like, okay, so what about heroin? Like, when... <laughs> um, but it's like, okay, it's not the government's place, but it's the it's the role of the family to educate children. Or maybe somehow in school, you know, a one-off thing in school being like, don't do drugs. Like, obviously, everyone's like, okay, <laughs> let's go and do drugs now. But it's like teaching it in terms of, like, the body and blah, blah, blah. So, but I'm just so interested, like, how you ended up writing that as a 17-year-old. Or, like, how you became interested in these kind of things. Yeah. yeah, I guess the YouTube videos would have had it. Yeah, that. I think I became interested in the ideas, as as I was saying earlier, the ideas of people being kind of free to make their own choices in life, uh, and not being over encumbered by government intervention. 
And I think on the what what uh, Chris Snowden now calls lifestyle economics is an important element of that. It's it's your freedom to enjoy yourself in life and not be directed about what what you can and cannot do. And I think around that time there'd been a bit of discourse in Australia about the alcopops and the alcopop tax and these is these evil um, substances. Now I think subsequently they worked out that putting a special tax on alcopops led people to buy bottles of vodka and bottles of soft drink because it would become cheaper. There was also a bit of concern that there was an ironic there was one study of the University of Sydney that said um, the alcopops tax led to an increase in drug use because people substituted substituted in the margin away from alcopops because they were more expensive and, and did, did other harder substances. I don't think Margaret was necessarily sophisticated at that point. I think you're right. It was it was a little bit more, well, people do act irresponsibly. Some people even get drunk. You know, that's not necessarily the best thing. There's like a like a, like a negative externality. You know, if, if everyone all the time walking around Melbourne was absolutely intoxicated off their face, um, I don't think it would be a particularly kind of welcoming or nice place to live. But at the same time, you're not going to be able to solve that kind of an issue through government intervention and trying to tell people how to live their lives. People are going to, you know, the, the classic um, lesson of prohibition is that uh, people are ultimately still going to want to do certain behaviour, whether or not you, you do or do not allow them. You should, in one respect, respect people and the behaviour they, they want to do and, in the second respect, try to minimise the impact on others if there is some kind of negative impact. And I think that, that as a principle, is certainly something that um, I suppose I began developing in, in an article like that. I mean, why did I write it? I think I, I was basically got in around that point. I was just got interested in politics and and writing and, and wanted to um, get into being able to publish opinion pieces. Um, and the ABC had an opinion site called the Drum that they would take external contributors for, and they accepted my piece and put it up on their website. I think around the same time, I read a piece. Uh, I think it was in defense of. Um, private schooling or something along those lines that got on the the ages online website and there were a few things I was just trying to basically I was trying to pitch a bunch of different things just to see whether or not I could um, get more involved in writing because something I wanted to do interesting on that has your thinking kind of evolved a lot from that point or are you like yeah these are my values and that's it I think in terms of my broad principles are similar. I think my kind of, as, as you, you know, explore the world more and learn more, your ideas become kind of more nuanced and more complex. So I, I think my understanding of, of issues is, is definitely changed. I'm probably not as dogmatic about some things as I might have been in the past. What did you used to be dogmatic about? Oh, that's a good question. I know, I think I would have probably been more dogmatic about, you know, in you know when you're at university you can you can kind of go to a, a more of an extreme and be like well you know I don't think there should be any regulation of all these things and now I'm like well I kind of appreciate that that you might you know there might be some role for the state you know in in certain areas where I, I don't necessarily think I would have appreciated them in the past like for example when COVID came I was probably more sympathetic to some level of um, restrictions than I, I can ever imagine me being when I grew up. Um, and took kind of a slightly less kind of extreme uh, libertarian perspective despite my principles because of appreciating the kind of negative impacts and negative externalities on others. I'm probably taking something like uh, the environment more serious as an issue that it, you, you do have this very real issue again of you know, negative externalities from production causing uh, climate change. Not to say that 
climate change says that people shouldn't generally be free to make their own decisions or that climate change even says that you know a market system doesn't deliver prosperity it just says there are certain issues that sometimes require some level of intervention in the case of climate change i'd use something like carbon tax or an emissions trading scheme just to ensure that people take to account of the cost of climate change so i think being more kind of open and accepting of um some kind of interventions when there when there are specific issues and then trying to think about what the I suppose the least intrusive way to do that um, on people's liberty on on the kind of a well-functioning market system is something that I probably think about a lot more these days than I might have 10 years ago. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm thinking about even with that alcohol argument, this, I guess, because there's been, like, the episode I'm going to publish later this week is someone who grew up with parents who are alcoholics and he... Which usually actually, well, I don't know. But then that meant he didn't go anywhere near that way. But my point is, if you leave stuff to the family, it's like, how do you solve something in that situation where the parents are the ones struggling? It's like, what's the libertarian answer to that? What is a libertarian argument to bad parenting? I mean... (laughs) I mean, it's a good question. Not bad parenting. Like, they're struggling. Yeah. You know, there's some... It's yeah. like, got, come from January. It's like the way they grew up. Like, yeah. someone was abused by their parent or whatever. And then, like, how can we as a society help? I'm just very solution-focused. So I I yeah, well, just see the well, damage of yeah. alcohol in society, but I'm like, how do we... And I agree, like, I don't think that... Letting the government control stuff, you just look at... You just have to look at countries where the government has rules that you don't like. For example, Qatar. And then it's like, you know, it's so funny how people can look at that and be like, wow, that's so bad how they treat their people. But then realise, like, if you give control to a government here, maybe they could just make a decision that you don't like either. Yeah. So that's kind of like a general good reason to not give a ton of power to the government. But it's like, but then how do you solve some of these problems? Yeah, I mean, in the first instance, um, I'd be sceptical about the ability of to use the state to solve problems. Like, I, I don't, I, I think part of the issue is in public debate and discourse often it says, you know, and, and you're completely right, we have this serious issue. You know, there, there are parents who are alcoholics who, who do terrible things to their children. Um, and therefore, some will say, well, therefore, what you need to do is, you know, limit people's access to alcohol. Now, quite frankly, if someone's an alcoholic, it's very hard to limit access to them. Their willingness to pay for the alcohol is actually very high. You know, Chris and I can talk about this a lot more, but, you know, it's why, you know, minimum pricing in Scotland, for example, hasn't worked very effectively. You, you come up with these very, you know, nudgy, interventionist kind of solutions to these problems that are far deeper and, and kind of culturally ingrained issues. Um, and I don't think we have a, a discourse or a way of talking about um, some of these issues other than to say that talking about them, I think, is probably actually a key part of it, as well as uh, having an, an idea of, of what the kind of interventions are you, you can do is probably a very localised level, so within the communities that are going to try to address these issues. Now, at one extreme, uh, there might be dust fiber case here where parents are actually abusing their children and there is clear role for state to occasionally remove children from an abusive household. But I think what you're talking about here is probably more nuanced cases where there isn't necessarily, and an, as you, it's an absolute extreme to take a child away from their parents and you, you don't want to do that very often. So what do you do in the in-between cases to try to kind of improve people's individual behaviour? I mean, to some extent, you probably have to accept that 
the price of liberty that is that people will sometimes behave badly and they'll even sometimes behave badly to each other. But the, the cost of kind of the authoritarianism required to prevent that would be too high. Um, and therefore, you, you accept a kind of margin of error here. And you say you can't, practically speaking, you can't solve every, every problem. And if you try to, you're just going to cause other problems. So, you know, for example, you could put cameras in everyone's houses to track them constantly uh, as, you know, kind of like a dystopian response to um, uh, family abuse situation or domestic abuse situations. But of course, we would say to that, rightfully so, that's you know, a revolting, disgusting idea to lose our, our privacy and our, our, our freedom accordingly. So therefore, you have to think about what the other things you can do. So you ensure you have a good criminal justice system to, to ensure that when people do kind of abuse each other or, or act inappropriately, that, that, that there's some kind of response there. Um, you try to kind of move cultural norms. So, you know, one of the interesting ones in alcohol is that um, younger people are are drinking a lot less like people aged 18 to 25 these days are drinking substantially less than than, than we drank when we were younger and there seems to be like a bit of a shift in the culture of that there and i don't think that's necessarily because of government programs or anything i think there's just something in the ether uh, out there and a lot of these things are kind of cultural phenomenons and cultural discussions rather than things that can be fixed with with the regulation and, and state intervention so i kind of try to thinking about those kind of social issues i don't say I have a solution to them, I, I, I by no means know what the right idea is. Um, but I think part of the process is trying to discover what that is and being a little bit more sceptical than people usually are about saying, well, the, the, the government just needs to fix this. And it's like, well, if the government could just fix it, the government would have just fixed it. You know, if, if things were easily solvable, and there's this idea in public policy called wicked problems, things that are just really difficult problems, you know, Indigenous Australian disparities, for example, and, and health issues in the, in the Northern Territory, that, that's a really, like, it's a wicked problem. Like, nobody has, has a perfect answer to a perfect solution to it. Um, and a lot of the interventions that have been tried to fix those problems have caused, as I've said, cause other problems that are quite authoritarian in nature. Um, and, and therefore, there's, there's, a, there's a, I suppose, a need just to kind of step back and say, well, these things aren't necessarily easily solvable. Um, and just saying that you know, the government should do something to it isn't going to fix it. Well, then I guess that's where we come to the importance of free speech and open discussion, being able to talk about things to then figure out what the solution is. Because, yeah, that the government, they're, like, spying on you in your home, that comes back to the same problem of who decides. Like, who's the person watching the footage deciding what's the right way? And that's kind of totally against the free to choose. Cause, but I think, I think the answer is education, which is what you... And that's what I think young people are realising, like, on the alcohol point, but maybe on a lot of other things that are harmful. Like, if you let people figure stuff out themselves, they realise, like, actually, it doesn't feel good to, like, abuse this, you know, being hungover or something doesn't feel good. And then maybe that, or, like, I like being healthy and, like, eating well, rather than, yeah, the government telling you this is what to eat. It's like, if you just figure out, oh, wait, when I eat vegetables, like, I feel better than if I eat Maccas every day. Um, But then I think... it's yeah it's like stigma as well you need to know that it's okay to not drink if you don't want to yeah i mean i'd probably be more skeptical of like formal educational tools to try to solve these problems than i might have been in that i honestly i can't remember exactly what i wrote in that piece i i I think i did say some like something slightly naive is like you know if only schools could tell kids, you know, not to drink alcohol. I'm like, well, obviously, if you tell a kid not to drink alcohol, there's nothing that, in a, particularly in a tacky way, there's nothing you're going to make them want to do more than drink alcohol. But I, I think I think there's something about, like, broader kind of 
cultural movements, which is, I suppose, education and understanding of the world that changes. And that's probably what shifted. You know, there's something about just kind of the behaviour of your peers um, as they're influ- as everyone's influenced by all sorts of different things. There's probably the ex- explanatory factor. You know, everyone, at least when, you know, when I was 18, 19, 20, I, I don't think I can imagine really anyone trying to say, you know, let's do something social and let's not drink. Like it, that just like there was nothing. There was no there was no social activity that would pay behave or form that way. Well, I assume it's just a lot more common these days uh, for young people to you know socialize amongst each other without drinking alcohol. Um, and therefore, if no one's drinking alcohol, you're not going to drink alcohol. And therefore, your alcohol consumption is less. And it's just kind of like a change in uh, what it, the kind of norm and the behavior is, rather than kind of a top down educational thing. Because I think often when people say, "Oh, if only we'll just you know we just need to add this to the educational curriculum," I mean. How much does anyone really remember from school? How much are they likely to follow what they're told at some seminar for 30 minutes? Maybe some of it's good and important, but like I'd be a bit skeptical. I think it's yeah, more those kind of cultural factors and changing in behavior. Yeah, and because that can quickly, again, go into brainwashing. Like, who chooses the curriculum? Why is this being put there? Is it some evangelist thing? But I think that's why it, again, comes back to um, encouraging people to learn themselves and think critically about things and teaching yeah like within science this is i think the point you made with this. but yeah no you're saying just te- telling people don't drink is never going to work but in science being like this is how alcohol affects but it, importantly not doing it in a brainwashing way being yes. like choose to do whatever you want but by the way like this is, you know, it's. I, think I, I don't know if you remember. I, we had these. They had the, definitely had a, a kind of neo Puritan, um, uh, like show at school. Like I remember where they had like, like, it was it was it was using um, uh, like characters to try to do a show about like. I can't remember if it was about sex or drugs or alcohol or some mixture of all three. And I just remember just finding it like truly hilarious in the wrong way. Where they're, they're, this is like so clearly like propaganda, prop- propagandizing us. Or like the one episode, the, I also have this like distinct memory of like our one like sex ed thing where they split up the men and, and the girls and they got, they showed the men how to put like condoms onto a banana or something ridiculous like that. And I'm like, I guess this is teaching people good kind of sexual behavior, I, I guess. I don't know. This just feels very, it feels very like manufactured and fake um, as a result of like, it's kind of almost like a, a box ticking exercise and that those kind of educational things, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, maybe, I, I guess I remember it, but I don't think it really stopped me from drinking. Um, and I'm not really sure I learned how to put on a condom as a result of that, but maybe I did. Maybe I did. Yeah. I guess it's the learning more in the way of like, I don't know if you know Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep. And it's like just explain like the facts around, yeah. okay, if you're this sleep deprived, this is what happens to your body. It also has stuff in there about alcohol and memory. So for people to decide for themselves, like, hang on, I don't want to fuck up my exam that I've studied for because by like sleep deprivation or alcohol or something. So I'm choosing for myself to make this decision. I think that's way more empowering for people. Yeah. I think there's also there's there's also kind of a liberal instinct to have, which is to say, okay, give people information they want, but sometimes people are going to make bad decisions. And you, in a free society, we have to be free to make decisions that are not necessarily 
you know, objectively in our own interest. And I, I think there's an important part here that um, the third party doesn't have the capacity to decide what is good for you. And that as much as you know, you might want to tell grab someone and just be like, stop being so stupid. Why are you doing that with your life? Um, I, I think part of the essential part of, of being able to have our own freedom is the freedom to not necessarily do things that are appropriate, good and smart. And that in some respect, we need to be accepting of the fact that other people don't necessarily always do things that are that are good and, and smart and appropriate. That you know, people buy lottery tickets, for example, which are like rationally ridiculous investment. You know, the return likelihood of return is like very, very, very low. And yet people do it. They get some kind of joy out of it. The the kind of fact that they might be out of this week. You know, get the hundred million jackpot or whatever. And there's clearly something there that's a reason why people still want to buy lottery tickets and and that we, we don't ban the lottery even though we know the odds are very terrible and rationally you shouldn't do it. Mm. But I guess if people know that's a game, like why not join in a game? It's like a raffle, like, oh, maybe I could win. Well, indeed, indeed. But, uh, you know, you could make an argument to say, well, some people are very low income. In fact, lottery you um, users are probably typically are lower income, that they're really getting duped by the system, that they don't have proper knowledge about their, the odds and they think the chances of winning are far higher than they really are. And therefore, you know, the lottery is, is harmful to people. Um, and I, I think... There's probably you know, a decent argument to say everything I've just said is true, but does that necessarily then justify banning it altogether? Or do you accept that, that some people are going to make, other people are going to make decisions that aren't necessarily in their own interest? Um, and your, 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 sorry, I should say your version of their own interest and that their own interest might be, as you've said, it's a game or something fun. I, know, I don't really think about the odds. Most people don't really think about odds very much. and People don't tend to have a statistical mind. Does it really matter? So how would you think about having regulation that says the lottery has to put on chance of winning you know for like investment products you have to put on you might lose money by whatever buying these shares so they then have to put on the odds yeah i mean i think it would ruin some of the fun if people were constantly seeing the odds probably i'm sure there's a way uh, and i haven't bought a lottery ticket um in a very long time i'm sure there's probably a way to see the chances of victory somewhere um if that's not necessarily prominently displayed um, I think that's probably fine. I'm not sure. I'd, uh, it would it would seem to ruin the lottery if if people had like a better statistical understanding of it. Like as you've said, part of the fun part of the game is that you're not really thinking about those statistical chances. You're thinking about something else. So, what are the main like core values that now you live by? Live by, or, or like, or I think should be central to politics. A bit of both. A bit of both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of what I think you know drives political philosophy is definitely the idea of, of freedom and, and um, people being free to kind of um, live their own lives as, as they see fit. Um, generally, a sense of kind of what, what would make up a kind of prosperous society and, and ensuring that people are able to prosper. So I guess those prosperity and freedom are, are kind of the main things I focus on politically. It's more individual level. Um, kind of thinking about what conceptually is the good life and, and taking opportunities and, and trying to ensure that, you know, we in our limited time we have on, on this grand planet that we kind of think positively and, and optimistically and, and, and try to grasp everything we can ahead of us, um, which I suppose is interrelated to my political philosophy and kind of a bit, bit more of a political and economic optimist than we often hear in, in debates these days. I generally think things are getting better. Um, and the, you know, the world is not a terrible place and that although there are terrible things that happen and there are problems that need to be solved, 
um, we're, we're generally in a good kind of trajectory uh, for humanity. And the goal is to keep us on that trajectory where things continue to get better uh, by, by leaving people as free as possible to um, create the prosperity for society. And how does that work? How does your version of like the most ideal society work with the people who are left behind? Like, how does the government support them? Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, favourable to some kind of safety net um, that ensures that people who are, you know, kind of between opportunities or people who do kind of struggle for, for one reason or another are provided for and supported. Now, I quite like the metaphor that the, the problem with the safety net is that sometimes people get caught in the net. So you don't want people to be given so much kind of welfare support, state handouts, that there's no longer any sense of hard work um, in, in encouraging people to be determined and, and fight through adversities and, and seek opportunities. You, you don't want to create a kind of docile society just through the welfare system where you have one set of people who are working hard and then you transfer um, money to the other half of society who are begrudgingly, they're probably going to be angry because they're not going to get as much as they want and, and not going to have as high living standards as those people who are um, working hard and, and dedicated. So I think as, as a broad society, there is a, a duty to have some kind of level of, of transfer and welfare state, but ensure that the, the, the safety net is just that, a safety net, it's not something that becomes the, the be-all and end-all of life. Um, and you, know, you can think about that in more specific ways, you know, making sure you have some kind of healthcare system, but um, still having no issue whatsoever with having also privatised healthcare at the same time, or having a really good education system, but not necessarily delivering that through the state, having a Milton Friedman talked about a voucher system where more or less you, you're given a parents are given a whatever the value of public education is and they can choose which school they, they go to and, and therefore um, are able to ensure that their, their child gets the best possible education so the, the welfare state having kind of a, a really important function in terms of enabling people to get educated um, as well as ensuring some kind of safety net when, when things necessarily go right but overall leaving people as free as possible to, to prosper in their, their own regard and, and create their own value and sense of purpose in their lives. And how do you think about people who want to pursue something that benefits society but doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily rewarded by the market, like the arts, for example? Well, I mean, the arts is often rewarded by the market, and there are many forms of art that are, that are highly profitable and, and get a large amount of patronage. Um, I, I very much in, encourage and, and have no objection whatsoever to philanthropy and, and charity as a, as a way to fund the arts. So it's kind of like the traditional method um, of, of funding some of the greatest artists in human history had, had some kind of benefactor. Um, and, and as a social norm, I think that's quite a positive and good one. I'm a little bit sceptical of kind of state funding of the art just because I think that ends up kind of turning into a form of middle class welfare it's, it's effectively the, the kind of the, the popular arts don't really need to be funded you know popular television uh, like you know the crown on Netflix that doesn't need state funding you don't really need state funding for, for musicals at least the, on the west end that have a high um, level of turnout what you need state funding for are things like the, uh, the opera or some Shakespeare plays or some regional productions and if you need to state subsidise them then there's probably not that much of demand or interest in them um, and it kind of showing that, that it's not necessarily what people want to see or do and if no one's willing to put their money behind it either you know through a market transaction or through a donation 
that I'm not sure that, that there's a big role of the state in, in outside of that. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> thinking of some, like, struggling creatives I know who are... So I guess for that, it's like, follow your purpose, but be aware that this is the society we live in and this is the best version of a society because if you are under, like, a communist regime, like, you're not going to be able to make any art full stop. <laughs> That's, so. yeah, well, yeah, in that kind of dystopian way. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to make a claim that we live in the best fossil society and everything is perfect and there's no problems out there and, and no artists just need to stop complaining. I mean, I would say if someone chooses to become an artist and that, that you know, the choice that they're most welcome to make and, and seek success doing that, but if you can't persuade other people to give you money as like a representation of you doing something valuable then I don't know necessarily why you're entitled to other people's resources you know why should the money go to you and not to a you know struggling stay-at-home mother with five children who they need to support you know it's all the some people say just you both but you know it's all a question of priorities in terms of society and the, the reason why you know first and foremost market transactions I think are, are wrongly seen as unethical or, or immoral or you know um survival of the fittest or, or you know profit is greed or whatever whatever that is or greed is good i think that's all that's all kind of bogus well all all you're doing by selling a product on the market is showing to other people you're creating a, something that is valuable to them and, and profit is your reward of creating a valuable product um you know steve jobs and apple profited immensely by creating innovative uh products or through all sorts of different um, levels, you know, be it creating the, the first really usable smartphone to modern cloud-based computing products that ensure my photos sync across lots of different places. You know, there's all sorts of different things. And, and the fact that they're getting paid for that is a sign that they've created something that people want to buy and they want, they want to sell. And every time the government steps in to try to kind of subsidize something that might be justified in some cases, but you've got to you've got to say you know if the government let's say subsidizes a factory that's that's struggling and um, because they they can't compete with with, with other um, producers of the same product, what they're effectively doing is rewarding someone for being effectively a failure to make a profit and, and to create something that people want to buy, um, and therefore I think that should be minimized as much as possible, and that people should be required to seek their own profit and their own. Um, by selling product that people want. And that's why I think kind of the market is quite an effective tool for allocating resources because it, it is that democratic process where people go out and buy something that sends a signal that we should you know, use the resources and our efforts towards that purpose. Um, and if you can't get someone to do that, then uh, you know, unfortunately it might be terrible, but you, you probably need to do something else that people have a demand for, that people want you to do. Yeah, that's so interesting because... I was watching that GameStop documentary it was on Netflix about that whole Reddit thing that happened a couple of years ago. And someone, it's like the people versus the hedge funds. And this woman is talking about Toys R Us, how some, yeah, a hedge fund had like short position on that because yes. it was going bankrupt. And she's like, the head, Wall Street has like, destroyed my happiness of like me going to Toys R Us and buying toys for my kids but it's like no the business just like they were going bankrupt because they weren't managing their bit or they weren't innovating or whatever right like it's not the hedge fund's fault it's not like evil 
capitalism. Yeah. Hedge funds get hedge funds get a lot of slack. It's kind of I've I run to call it in defense of hedge funds. It's this idea that hedge funds go in and they you know they buy a company and they exploit it and they cut their staff and they do all these evil things and then oh, they private sell, equity. Private <laughs> equity. So hedge funds hedge funds play games in the market. Sorry, you're a you're a finance sector person than me. I'm, I'm but like it's sort of um, hedge yeah, fund. Yeah, but people don't even know what the word people just like these things mean yes. evil. <laughs> yes, well indeed. I mean so yeah, so so hedge, hedge funds uh Oh, yeah, sorry, private equity um, indeed was what the article was trying to defend. But it's like, well, you know, you've got this evil private equity people who do all these terrible things. It's like, well, they're coming into a business, they're, they're taking up a business that's not necessarily performing to its full potential. They think that they can make a profit out of it by improving its efficiency internally. That might, in fact, mean some stuff needs to get low and um, get sacked. And um, that's kind of very sad and unfortunate at a personal level for those individuals. I think that's part of the reason why, you know, it is morally righteous for, to have a safety net to support people when they, when they do lose their jobs for whatever reason they might lose it, be it foreign trade or be it um, efficiency gains and, and like profitability of a business. You know, improve improve the improve the business, ensure that basically everyone else can keep their job and the business can keep operating, and then they sell it on. And that that's kind of that's like that's an important function that, that they're doing. And and you know, hedge funds obviously I'm, I'm far less of an expert than, 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 than you're going to be on the kind of you know, finance sector and, and what they're actually doing day to day. But they're obviously trying to deliver profits to uh, people who invest money and, and they're, they're using financial tools and instruments to do that. And Toys R Us was one example of it. Yeah. Well, I guess the problem is if people think the system only benefits high net worth people, as in a lot of the time people don't realise like we are the shareholders. A lot of these... And yeah, of course, there are hedge funds that the regular people don't access. But a lot of products and companies, they're owned by pension funds who are looking after our money for our retirement. So I think people, this is this big issue that people think it's all like the evil rich people are controlling everything. And it's like, who are these <laughs> evil yeah. rich people? Like, these are massive pension funds who literally their whole purpose is to look after us, the people um, so the government doesn't look after us in retirement. Yeah, I mean, it's that, it's that there, was a, there was a poll relatively recently in the UK asking people whether or not they identified as kind of working or middle class. Um, and I, I think this phenomenon is much even more extreme in the UK than in Australia, where people with over £100,000 income, well above average, massively above average incomes by, by UK standards, um, like something like 60% of them would identify as working class. So a lot of, a lot of people who are kind of wealthier financially successful don't necessarily see themselves that way and they, they people have this perception there's always kind of like an ultra rich above them um who can actually somehow just be taxed enough to fund everything we want to fund now the truth of it is if you do try to uh, tax those billionaires those people at top they're the most mobile ones you, you're going to probably end up scaring them away and they'll end up um, leaving your country just kind of what happened in france under Hollande when he introduced like, like an 80 percent income tax rate on top earners so there's, there's that risk. Then, then, then if you actually want to tax people substantially, you basically have to tax middle income earners because that's where most of, that's where you know people somewhere between you know the the thirty to eighty percent um, um, of society around that point is where you're going to find a lot of income, and inevitably they when the government needs more revenue, that's who they're going to have to go to. It's in it's in the same sense. It's like that there is not this. There, there are obviously like a small number of extremely wealthy billionaires who uh, exist, but that's not where most of society's income or, or prosperity or wealth is. I think wealth is much more distributed than people realise. And billionaires, 
their wealth doesn't come from an income. Like, they're not a lawyer who's receiving an income. Like, their wealth comes from owning something. Yes, owning, indeed. like, a massive piece of something. So that's taxed totally differently. And then, yeah, the more money you have, the more sophisticated, like ways you can get around tax of course yeah which i think is a problem you know i'd, I'd favor a much simpler tax system so we didn't we, we tax people maybe at a lower rate but with a lot less exemptions and the ability to kind of play play tax games um i mean at the same time that it's quite interesting about who if you look at the list of kind of biggest companies billionaires you know it, it does tend to be people who have created some kind of a product now there are obviously some people on there because of family wealth but bill gates did not have family wealth uh you know steve jobs didn't have family wealth Je- jeff bezos did not have family wealth to, to put him in the place of billionaires have kind of created a, a product or an or in um a, a group of uh, businesses or something that's led them to be quite successful financially um that's you know the, the question is is what they've got fair I mean, it's kind of hard to determine what is exactly fair you know is, is Jeff Bezos's money fair but it seems like Amazon is something that's quite extraordinary quite positive for humanity and therefore he's been rewarded for that or like Walmart as if you know the US examples massively profitable family that's come out of um, the, the Walmart uh, c- company and and those people are extremely su- successful extremely rich but they've also created a product that has clearly been extremely popular in, in the fact that it's a, it's a very um, popular store in, in the US. So it's all those kind of things like when, when you're assessing is something fair and fair and reasonable. What would be unfair is if it was what economists would call rent-seeking, which is they've only been successful because effectively the state has forced other people to transfer money to them. And this is, this is what you do tend to see in kind of a lot of authoritarian countries. Is, is Putin's wealth fair? Probably not. Probably a bit suspicious that the guy who's been president of Russia for 20 years is a billionaire. He's probably done something dodgy in terms of transferring state resources to himself and, and his cronies. So, you know, it's that sense of why, why you're a billionaire matters more than the fact that someone is, is being a billionaire in themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know whether Amazon is good for society, but I think the point is it's like who... <laughs> well, if you think it is. Or yeah. Walmart. But it's like, but who gets to decide? Why should I get to... Des- it's like the markets decide. That. Yeah, do you buy things on Amazon? I ha- avoid it. At you avoid all. it. I, why? Well, because I'm just such a... I like supporting smaller businesses. I don't know, books, I just... I do not... I buy a lot of books. Okay, but then I buy them from Waterstones, which is a big chain. But for some reason, I just refuse to buy it on Amazon. But that's like my freedom to choose. You're right? most welcome to that. Yeah, and I think for, I think for most people, they 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 quite. You know, I love. I absolutely love Amazon, and I appreciate that. You know, it's not a perfect company, and that there are a lot of people who work extremely hard, um, who are necessarily paid massive salaries in order to ensure that their logistic system is the best in the world. But I did notice with Royal Mail striking, you, anything coming with Royal Mail, you basically can't get. Amazon's still doing next delivery. At the start of COVID, wasn't quite next delivery at one point. It was, some of it was delayed by two or three days. But when everyone was immediately trying to isolate, the, Amazon was a lifesaver for a lot of people in terms of being able to work from home or um, get toys for their kids or whatever else it may be. Like th- these, so I think Amazon provides an extraordinarily kind of positive function. Um, in a lot of people's lives. That said, though, some people do prefer to support local things. And the, the cost here is, you know, people. I think this is an interesting point, which is people people in the UK a lot complain about the fall of the high street and the fact that there's a lot of empty shops. The truth is the reason there are empty shops is because people aren't shopping on the high street. The shops would still be there if, if, if Amazon um, 
was not providing people with the service that they wanted. And, you know, kind of individually might bemoan the fall of the high street, but collectively we've made a decision that the high street is not necessarily something which we think should be have shops. We think it should be something else. Um, and I think that's difficulty, kind of the politics versus uh, the economics or what sometimes people say that the revealed and the stated choice. So you're relatively unique in the fact that um, you have a stated choice against Amazon and online retail and therefore you buy locally and that's revealed by your behaviour. But for a lot of people what they'll say is, I really um, am sad about the falling, fall down of the high street. I think it's terrible, you know, it makes my local community feel a lot worse as a result of the fact that there's nothing going on in, on my local high street. But in their reveal preference, they're just buying things online. So it's like, it's why you've got to be careful when, about people's, you know, talk is cheap mm. um, kind of approach to politics. I think going back to Bill Gates quickly, it should probably be pointed out that he had this access to him. Like, he developed what he did. This is according to Malcolm Gladwell, who tells an entertaining story in Outliers. But it's like he had access to this computer. There was, like, the chance to have access to that at that point in time. It's, like, purely when he, he was born at the exact right time. But also... It is the opportunities. So I guess that's the point in a free society. You want to make sure everyone has access to that those kind of education opportunities. Some people will have better, um, if you allow yeah, private education, people, parents will choose to allocate more to education and that's fine, I guess, but it's making sure that somehow the there's a basic level of education. Yeah. So Yeah, I mean, I think I you know, all for some kind of basic high standard quality level of education. On that Bill Gates example, I think it's I think it's an interesting one to unpack a bit because Bill Gates would not have been the only person to have access to a computer. There would have been a lot of other people, yet there's only one. No, it Bill was Gates. this crazy thing where it was like only universities had the it's like this special without the co- the new thing and it was like somehow because of this weird thing. Yeah, the but but what, I'll, what, I'll, what I'll say is that there would have been at least hundreds, maybe yeah. thousands of people. Not millions, but like Bill Gates would not have literally been the only person to have access to a computer, like to a to a super fan computer. There were other super fan computers that existed. He was like the only high school kid. It was the only high school in the in the world that had access to a computer okay. because the mother. Anyway, okay. Okay. But, but, yeah, but there, yeah, were, yeah. there were other kids at the high school. Like, <laughs> so the other time. It's, it's like, and clearly there were there were other over time. You know, obviously none of us could do what Bill Gates has done because he was born at a time where there weren't computers and. He developed a company that uh, made extraordinary software for computers and was, as a result, extremely successful. No one can quite, obviously no one can replicate Bill Gates. But the, the question for me more is, as I think you're getting to there, is like maximising the opportunity for as many people to be su- successful as they can possibly be. And I don't think, you know, even in a million years, even if I was born at the same time as, as uh, Bill Gates and I had access to that computer, I don't think I would have started Microsoft. Um, and maybe maybe a few other people would have, and, and then therefore Bill Gates is you know you're not someone who necessarily should get a unique thing to them. And of course there are other other people who make computer software and, and other computer um, developers. And then you can say, well they're all American because that's where the opportunity was at that point in time, and and where the relative prosperity was, um, and and therefore that's kind of what led to the the kind of personal computer revolution um, setting out the states. Now 
I, I think there's probably you're right that globally there would be a lot of untapped what you can kind of be getting to is that globally there's a lot of untapped opportunity and there are still tens of millions of people hundreds of million people in abject poverty who are never going to have the opportunity to succeed and, and that is you know tragic and awful and, and terrible um and 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 not something that um you know you can sit around and say that therefore uh you know the world is perfect and that's a way in which the world isn't perfect it's not enough people have those opportunities I think I'm more thinking about in the US because, yeah, that's just very different. For example, when I, when I worked in New York in finance, I couldn't believe on the street the amount, like, the amount of diversity that's there. Like, you just, we just are much more homogenous in Australia, I guess. So that was like, wow, this is so cool, being exposed to this kind of diversity and then inside my office the employ the op- the company won like most diverse employer award or whatever and i was looking around it was like every single person is not only white male straight they're also all jewish it's like there is literally <laughs> like i'm like where is the diversity here but i think that's yeah there's obviously issues with the Inter- country interestingly um there, there is a bit of a tendency of minority groups to be very successful entrepreneurs because they're often locked out of traditional kind of corporate world. So, so classically, um, maybe not so much today because because Jews aren't necessarily locked down the same way. But you know, Jews were seen as great entrepreneurs in in New York and in the US for a very long period of time and, and started a whole bunch of different companies. You know, why why does um, LA dominated by uh, kind of a, historically a set of kind of Jewish producers and, and film studio owners and it's because that was an area that they could go to because they were locked out of the kind of um, east coast power bases so they went to the west coast and set up this whole different world that then um, ultimately you know you can say there's now a Jewish domination of that but that was happened for its kind of own interesting historical reason and he says I think you, you can see that again in Silicon Valley where it's it's very the tech companies are very non-white they, they hire globally aggressively um, and and they a lot of you know, startup founders and, and disproportionately immigrants are non white for that reason. So I think in traditional institutions you inevitably don't get that diversity, but in kind of newer um, worlds you do for that reason. Actually, Malcolm Gladwell writes about that as well. About what's one of those big um, law firms? But basically, it was one of the Jewish guys who set it up. It was because yeah, he could not get a job. They would not hire a Jewish person at these old school law firms that only hired like wasps and then now then they ended up like fully taking over but that's have you been following that which is like terrifying about i can't remember who because obviously the kanye thing but then someone posted something that was like it's scary how this like anti-semitism that's like coming up and then all the comments on that post were like but explain, like, why is everyone Jewish in Hollywood? Like, why are all the wealthy... You know, it was like all these comments were just so... It's, yeah. like, terrifying. Yeah, I think there's, there's almost an interesting case here where um, there's, 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 like... Anti-Semitism is, is one of the kind of oldest historical hatreds. And you can delude yourself into um, thinking that it's, like, not something that exists or something that, that's still... Um, resonates with people and therefore it's kind of not really talked about very much or these these issues aren't really discussed and then you kind of micro communities you know as you kind of say with Kanye there's this like absurd ridiculous 
kind of very old style anti-Semitic narrative that comes out and you're like, where does that come from? Now, I don't think most people are anti-Semitic or you know, have that kind of an instinct. But then part of the problem is, is that these, these questions, these things aren't really discussed. So it's like, I think there's a bit of a temptation if you look at the, um, the movie studio, uh, you know, Los Angeles kind of case study here, where people will just say it's inappropriate to talk about the fact that, you know, um, movie studios, major movie shows that disproportionately have like a Jewish kind of founding story. Um, and then if you don't talk about that, then people will be like, well, then why is it? What is the conspiracy here? Did the Jews, did the Jews run Hollywood as, as kind of it goes? And it's like, well, the Jews don't, I mean, the Jews aren't a collective. Just some Jewish individuals have power positions in Hollywood. The reason why they have that is because of you know, this historical phenomenon and, and that's how the industry developed because um, they were willing to take this big risk in, in this new industry uh, in, the, in the 20th century. And that's the reason why you get Hollywood of today. There isn't a Jewish conspiracy to, you know, only promote other Jewish people or something uh, in the industry. It, there's no sense in which um, it's controlled, meaningfully controlled by the Jews. Um, but we also, at the same time, it's disproportionately representative of. Um, and, you know, you can, you can kind of point to other examples of that historically where, why were why do you get this kind of um, idea of Jews as the money takers and the money spinners? Well, you can say well it's not really true, but there are there are obviously some examples of it. You know, the Rothschilds are successful bankers. It's like well, why did Jews end up having that kind of role in you know the Middle Ages and medieval society? It was because Jews were we exactly um, Christians weren't allowed to charge interest. Jews were so, but Jews weren't allowed to ha- um, have homes or often weren't allowed to have property ownership. So instead they had a lot of money and they were allowed to charge interest on it, so therefore they became the bankers. You know, it's kind of like, a, these are the historical reasons why these things happen and these stereotypes develop. And this is where, going back to what you were saying earlier about the kind of discussion and, and debate is so important. Because so I think when you dismiss the discussions, you get the conspiracy theorists and you kind of, you can breed the anti-Semitism. I would claim when you, I think the, the danger is when you try to ban certain things that you get more of it festering. The classic thing is let's, ban Holocaust denial as they've done in Germany. It's like, well, obviously nothing. There's a few things. Ban Holocaust what? Denial. So make it illegal to deny the existence of, you know, the, 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 the Holocaust. It's like, is that really going to solve the problem of some people having in their head a bad idea? I think it's much better to try to have like a public and open debate. You know, you, you don't want to, there's a question about platform. You don't necessarily want to give David Icke a, you know, TV show on BBC One at a prime time every day, but it is occasionally important to have these debates and not to try to suppress them or ban them or prevent them or use the law and the, the kind of same principle or other forms of, of hatred or bad ideas or even bad behaviours as we were talking about earlier. Mm. Yeah, because these... <laughs> yeah, it won't go away. It will just go underground or it will just go on TikTok or it will just become like Andrew Tate or whatever, having a massive following saying these things about... Yeah. Um, also, I mean, not to say America is completely unique, but America is kind of uniquely crazy in some respects, which is you're probably always going to find a, like a, almost a disproportionate number of Americans who believe something crazy, more so than you will in, in Australia, even though you know, there are crazy people in Australia and, and, and the UK. It's like, it's, like, it's like you ask any question. It's like, do you think there are, you know, the, the classic, you know, is the queen a lizard? It's like you can always get 5% of people to say yes to that. There's always going to be like a proportion of people who believe something that's completely nuts. So you can't stop them. You can't stop them from believing something that is untrue and crazy, um, and you, you you shouldn't try to outlaw it either. You know, you shouldn't try to control what people's thoughts are. Yeah, but then how would you think about something like 
Alex Jones and that Sandy Hook thing. And then him, and then Twitter, oh, this Twitter thing I find so interesting with the Elon being like, yeah, we're not gonna ban anyone, but then it's like, you can't, then it's like, okay, Alex Jones isn't on Twitter. Um, and then obviously Elon like banning the journalists for sharing his whereabouts and it kind of, yeah. it's just this interesting thing to yeah. observe. But then, yeah, where do you draw the line with, or is it more like, okay, people can say what, whatever, but there are consequences, like what happened with the, with, cause Alex Jones is like the Sandy Hook and yeah. then got the massive fine. Yeah, I mean, so, so Alex Jones, um, case, I haven't looked into the specific local rule, uh, specific reason particularly closely. Um, I mean, there was effectively a defamation case where, and, and they, they were able to substantiate and the key principle of defamation, defamation is if you tell a lie and then it causes some kind of meaningful damage. So Alex Jones told this lie and then it led to this kind of harassment and abuse of these parents. So and there was a very clear kind of legalistic thing. Now, Even though he didn't know it was a lot, like he was genuinely like believed the conspiracy I think well I'm, I'm sure he believed it but it, you, you can't judge I think it's difficult to judge whether or not someone genuinely believes something but I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about defamation law in the sense of I think defamation law is often used by kind of the, the rich and famous in order to censor and um, prevent things being published about them instead of about them some of them true some of them false but I, I, I'm not defamation law is one thing you know it's got kind of like a bit of a long history to it it's kind of like a specific legal um, remedy for someone doing something that is causes actual harm um, and when you can substantiate and prove that harm monetarily and you kind of get the the um, appropriate compensation for it I think in terms of the kind of the broader free speech question so in my sense in my mind there's probably two lines to draw with free speech one is free speech in the kind of more traditional sense which is uh, what is the role of the state in terms of limiting things you can say? And I would say the role of the state in limiting things you can say should be extremely limited, you know, sympathetic to defamation some of the time, uh, obviously like actual harassment and abuse of people. You know, you, you don't have a right to go and kind of yell at someone in the street, just like obscenities uh, repeatedly every single day. You know, that is speech, but that, that, that is not exactly kind of like expressing opinion. It's something kind of distinctive and different. And there's a long history of um, kind of those kind of laws. Beyond that, though, I think people should be generally, at least when it comes to law, free to kind of say things that are kind of aggressive and, and even confronting and offensive um, to each other. Now, that's one line for free speech. Another line for free speech is what we kind of allow on these major digital platforms. And I think it's, it's not, although, you know, I'm kind of a, a free speech advocate when it comes to, broadly speaking, I appreciate that what Twitter might want to allow is not necessarily the same line of what the state should or shouldn't allow. Twitter might and, and has a very might have a very good reason to create a platform that um, has a certain characteristics or a certain kind of sense of community about it. And in that process, they they're going to set their speech limits at a different point. Now, obviously, um, they, they kind of legally obliged to remove anything that could be illegal, but they might, as a result of their policies, want to remove more things. And I think Elon was a bit naive and didn't understand that distinction very well, that you don't necessarily want to allow everything that is legal on your platform. You might actually say um, you don't want to allow certain things. Um, like uh, that said, though, I don't think Elon has been, he's, he, I think he's de facto accepted that point, but he hasn't been very consistent about it. So what he, I think he temporarily removed um, uh, some journalists who'd been kind of sharing somewhere where you could access Elon Jet. 
And he'd previously said, Elon Jet, the kind of Twitter account that tweeted the movements of his private jet, he'd previously said that he would allow that as a show of his dedication to free speech. He then decided to remove it. And that's kind of like, it feels like, and it appears to be, and you know, almost certainly is just making rules on the fly that are in his own instincts and his own benefit. And I don't think that's, his, I mean, I think he's the owner of the platform. He bought the platform. He can do that. But I don't think it's a particularly good way to operate a platform. And I think rightfully so, perhaps it's something that could ultimately really kill Twitter is that sense of unfairness and inconsistency in the application of the rules. And in one sense, it was already a key criticism of Twitter. But previously, Twitter made every effort, um, or made a lot of effort, I should say, not to try to appear to be consistent. And I think as a result of Twitter files, we're seeing they weren't. They were under a lot of pressure from the state and from the FBI when it came to like the the um, Hunter Biden story, and then they they kind of acted inconsistently there. I think it is a bit inconsistent to start removing some posts and not removing other posts because of election interference, specific election interference rules. I think all that stuff is is complete garbage. Now, in in that in one sense, that was a bad rate of one Twitter. Now Elon's kind of badly running Twitter in a different way by kind of playing his own own little games um, about what he, who he does and doesn't remove. Um, and that sense that it's it's not very up it's not it's not it's, it's very difficult to be completely objective about any of these things and to decide what piece of content you know, I, I heard about a recent um, case where it was like a conference of moderators like kind of platform moderators and they were kind of given a policy and given a piece of speech and they would ask you know these are the people who kind of make the decisions um, they were asked do you think this should be allowed or not allowed under this policy and there was massive amounts of disagreement you know it's like 50 50 on each one or something you know maybe 60 40. it's not necessarily clear what pieces of content violate what policies in what ways and it's it's the same principle of you know the courts often come to slightly different decisions in different cases that might appear similarly inconsistent um, and they do that at a much smaller scale it's really hard on these platforms with like like hundreds of millions of tweets every day and there's like 500 million tweets every day or something to try to work out what isn't isn't within policies um, and then to be consistent in your application of those policies so like it's just a really difficult task i think you've got to make an effort kind of like almost like a rule of law principle to be as consistent as you can and elon hasn't been very good at that well i think hopefully the lesson for everyone is that having one person in charge of anything <laughs> and making rules like this yeah it's is... about governance yeah i mean the Facebook's done something quite interesting, Meta's done something interesting, which is they set up a, a Supreme Court, an oversight board, where they kind of, they've appointed the good and the great from kind of journalism and, and think tanks and uh, civil liberty groups, and they've said, um, we want to be able to refer complex cases to you where we're not really sure what to do. And they've been operating for a little while now, I think for, for over a year, um, and they, they're quite... Um, they're not you know, at a, a legalistic standard. It's not kind of like the Supreme Court of the US level standard. But they will consider a case. They'll invite submissions. They'll write kind of a reasoned, logical um, response to it. They'll give recommendations to Facebook about how they should handle certain things. You know, I think it's incumbent upon these organisations. Admittedly, they're already getting regulated, so they quite extensively. I think that's raising a whole lot of other problems. But I think it, the, the organisations do have a responsibility in some way to try to fi figure these things out for the sake of their users, um, as well as to avoid kind of more authoritarian regulatory responses where somebody that you get some state regulator trying to control the way that they moderate, which is the way things are going in the, in the EU and the UK. Mm -hmm. Okay, can we quickly talk about your book? <laughs> yes. And then why you moved to London and then where we're sitting now in this beautiful part of Westminster. Woo. Where should we start? Where should we start? Maybe the book, the book came first, right? Yes. 
so yeah, I wrote a book, um, Democracy in a Divided Australia, which uh, was an effort to try to kind of come to grips with the rise of, of populism, um, very much inspired by what had been happening around Brexit and Trump, uh, as, as well as some of the kind of new literature around that that was developing, be it you know, Hillbilly LG or um, the, the Road to Somewhere in the UK, David Goodhart's book, um, and try to apply some of that literature and that thinking um, to the Australian context. So it was very much kind of developing this idea that you've got a kind of new political divide in Australian politics um, that had been kind of emerging over the previous decades. And you had this phenomenon where kind of in the post-war era, politics was kind of pretty predictable across Western-developed societies, where if you were middle-class, um, in Australia's case, Protestant, you tended to vote to the right, you voted for the Liberal Party, and if you're working class to the left, you're Catholic, um, and you voted to the left. And since the, the kind of rise of higher education, the fall of industrialism, uh, move to a knowledge economy, we've seen kind of very much a rejigging of the political divides. And the, the argument in the book is we, we kind of, we have those kind of old class-based divides, the kind of middle working class divide, but that's kind of now been overlapped by a new kind of cultural divide um, that, that takes its um, form of issues like immigration, um, national identity, should we change the date of Australia Day? Uh, should we um, allow more refugee arrivals into Australia? In the same way that they kind of fall onto other kind of cultural issues in the US context. And what you've seen as a result of that is a kind of real scrambling of the political map. So whilst inner city areas that used to uh, be very labour, basically labour, kind of working class dominated, they're now full of um, a lot of kind of progressive labour greens votes, vote, voices and voters, whilst um, in the kind of wealthy suburbs, again, used to be very liberal dominated, you see also the rise of the greens, more recently we've seen in Australia the rise of the teals, who are kind of more concerned about environmental issues. Now I call, I call that kind of that group of people inners. So you have kind of left inners who are kind of the progressive university educated left, and then you have right inners who are kind of like the wealthy university educated right, um, who are kind of competing in the inner city, um, and, but tends to be quite kind of culturally dominant um, and, and, and kind of socially and culturally progressive. And, and then the argument goes, I have these other group, kind of the outers, um, who live in kind of middle to outer suburbia, regional Australia, um, they tend to be less likely to have higher education, more likely just to kind of have a school education or a trade. Um, they tend to be kind of more culturally conservative, more nationalistic, more patriotic, and um, they probably greater in number than the inners. Um, they, they tend to have a more positive view of kind of Australian history, Australian patriotism, be kind of more skeptical of, of um, uh, illegal immigration and more concerns about boat arrivals. Uh, and they're kind of in a very different kind of cultural malay, a very different cultural section. Um, and, and they, again, they traditionally voted Labour, but uh, as a kind of work class constituency, and, and a lot of them still do, particularly ones with trade education who have kind of a, a union movement connection. But there's a lot of others who have become more entrepreneurial, who might have, you know, the kind of working class side of their own business. In the UK, they call them um, white van man. You know, they're, they're someone who's, who's, who's doing their own thing. Um, and they're kind of increasingly likely to vote Liberal uh, or National Party in the Australian context. So yeah, we've got this kind of, I suppose, more complex political divide going on in Australian politics. Um, it makes life a lot harder for the political parties. I think we see this, we see this in different ways at each election. Um, often Labour, I think, has struggled in recent history as a result of the fact that they were struggling to deal with the, the rise of the Greens, 
in the kind of inner city constituencies and then the kind of suburban um, uh, side of things, in these marginal labor lib liberal seats, liberals are able to play a lot more to those kind of cultural questions. And Scott Morrison did quite well there. Tony Abbott did quite well there in terms of winning elections initially. Um, now the, the kind of it's flipped and, and the Liberals are struggling with the same dynamic where they've lost a lot of inner city seats at the same time as losing their suburban seats. They don't really know who they're appealing to. Are they for the working class man in the outer suburbia or are they for these traditional liberal heartlands that are now going more progressive, more left in their disposition? So um, I wrote that book in about 2017-18. It was published at the end of 2018. Um, I'd like to think it's been vindicated by subsequent events uh, in terms of Australian politics. But it also, I suppose, then tries to explore some questions around what is the nature of power, that the power dynamic this creates, and what the frustrations this creates. So in the inners, they were talking about those progressives are disproportionately represented in elite ind industry and business, in politics and the civil service, in academia. Um, and, and what does that result in in terms of the way Australia's governed and what kind of policies are pursued? Um, and then thinking about, you know, how you end up wanting to balance these these different, this new divide, um, as well as the kind of electoral consequences of it. What are the, what are the kind of policy consequences of it? Um, you know, how can you decentralise power a bit more? How do you deal with controversial issues? Um, and I think there are perfect answers to any of those questions, but um, there's something I was trying to explore as well. How, so how do you see you, or how do you think about the political compass? Because it's probably... Yeah, not just like left, right, but authoritarian, libertarian, and where you fit in with it. And then how do you think about that here in the political landscape? And then also <laughs> how do you deal with if people kind of might label you as like, oh, you're ultra right wing because you're talking about free markets or, you know, how people have this confusion between liberal values and like right you know, quote-unquote, right-wing and how, yeah, these lay, like, yeah. it doesn't necessarily make sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of right economically, libertarian, uh, very libertarian uh, socially. I mean, I personally think that's quite a consistent political philosophy. If you look at polls, it doesn't tend to be a particularly popular quadrant. Most people tend to be kind of uh, left in economics and, and libertarian socially or authoritarian socially or uh, combined with being right on economics. I mean, I, I think if people are always shocked, you know, when, when the IEA will be, someone at the IEA will say something that's very pro-immigration and they're like, well, the IEA is such kind of a conservative think tank. It's like, well, the IEA in the Chief of Economic Affairs were not necessarily that uh, conservative. Um, there are some people a little bit more conservative, some people a little bit more libertarian, or tend to be quite free market leaning. So I think it's just appreciating that kind of politics is um, a little bit, little bit different and, and more complex um, in terms of the, the way we view it, you don't necessarily need to 100% agree with uh, a party um, position. And in fact, again, this is this you know, going back to the summer theme in the book, which is the parties were created in a particular um, political context, a particularly class-based context. Um, and there wasn't really that much social or cultural controversy. These, these things started to develop um, in the second half of the, the, the 20th century again. But... The idea of having debates about, I don't know, same-sex marriage would just been ridiculous. You know, everyone thought homosexuality was terrible and should be outlawed. You know, that was just that was really like 80% of the population in the in the middle half of the 20th century. Um, so there wasn't really social issues in politics and therefore there wasn't a need to go left-right on, on social issues that, that developed a bit more 
um, later as, as these issues emerged and, and then became uh, politicised subsequently uh, by various groups um, in, in, the, in the latter half of the 20th century. So yeah, the, you basically you don't need to attach yourself to any of those particular labels. Maybe you do if you want to be in, in politics and in parliament, but um, I think there can be a bit more variability in, in terms of people's views. So how do you feel if someone criticises you or labels you in a way that you don't feel like matches what... <laughs> I take, take it a bit like a stoic. I don't, really, I don't really care. I mean, obviously people, you know, if you're making, you know, public pronostications as, as I do, people are going to label you and, and say mean things about you all the time. Um, often much worse than saying, well, you're a conservative. I think, I think in the scheme of, I don't really consider myself conservative, but in the scheme of things, there are much worse things that people tend to call me. Uh, like than, what? Well, I mean, people are quite, just generally quite abusive on, on Twitter and uh, in newspaper, col- in newspaper you know, comment section. Just, uh, and does it affect you? Um, I've kind of learned to live with it. I think at first it can be a bit confronting, particularly if you get... The worst thing you can kind of buy for your mental health is you, you do a tweet that then gets picked up quite extensively by people who disagree with you, um, particularly if it gets picked up by some kind of major public figure who has a big following and a big aggressive following. Um, and then that will lead to kind of like a constant stream of abuse. Um, as a result, you get kind of a, a pile-on effect and people hiding behind. People who kind of, you know it's what people are saying about you aren't true. It isn't, isn't true about yourself. It's not necessarily representing your views. Um, they wouldn't say it to you in person if they met you. But kind of on social media there's just a bit of a temptation just to perform to the audience and to say what is perceived to be righteous and good and are they like personal attacks and they can be they can be um and name calling it's kind of juvenile but i think it's important just to not turn off notifications on your phone mute you can twitter has a great mute feature so you can just mute a tweet and then you stop seeing any of the replies to that tweet so if you're getting someone piling onto you over a tweet, you just mute the tweet. Deleting, I think, is generally a bad idea because that's like that would be suggesting you've done something wrong or be sending a signal that you had done something wrong or that you didn't believe what you were tweeted. And maybe you don't, but you know, I, I think you know, unless you know, there certainly are cases where you should do that and you should you know say I didn't mean to say that or that was a mistake and you know delete something, and get rid of it. But if people are being you know just abusive, like you know unnecessarily or or, or for you know. But in a bad faith kind of way, just muting the tweet, just not seeing it is, is the best response to it and not really worrying kind of too much about what people are saying about you online if you're going to be in the public domain or you're going to engage with Twitter extensively. Have you ever felt like I shouldn't have said that or I want to clarify? Yeah, I mean, there was a case uh, recently where I said I, I took a selfie of myself um, at a kind of union protest and then put that on Twitter, and then that got quote tweeted by the union, which then led to like a real stream of stuff uh, from the supporters of that union. And then they went through these tweets of mine from like when I was 14 or 15 and started posting them back at me. Again, I was on Twitter way too early as we established earlier. Um, and, and I was like, I really wish I hadn't tweeted that when I was 15 or 16. They weren't that, necess- a few of them were political, but they were just like intentionally kind of misinterpreted or taken out of context. I'll say I don't remember what the tweets were um, that I'd previously tweeted. I should have deleted all my previous tweets when I, re- when I reached adulthood. And, you know, there's there's got to be, like be like a button you can press and be like, delete everything off the internet that I said before I was, 
you know, 20 or something because I was quite a silly teenager. But, you know, it, it is what it is. You can't undo the past or control what you might have said or thought or, or done. And that's so annoying. Like, can't we realise that people do stupid stuff when they're teenagers and we're allowed to yeah, I think make mistakes? Surely we have to get more accepting of that fact. Surely as we get millennial politicians who grew up with the internet and, and, and were kind of active users of the internet when they were at university and when people had mobile phones that could, you know, take video, we're going to just have to accept the fact that politicians... Uh, are human and normal and therefore hopefully that as a kind of cultural phenomenon has become I think it probably is becoming less and less interesting to say that you know this person when they were 17 did this or said that it's like I don't know it, it feels like it, unless it's something truly terribly awfully monstrously bad um, I, I think people have probably have moved on a little bit at least don't you? I hope so but so did that make you feel like I shouldn't have taken this photo like does it ever make you feel like, oh, I can't be bothered posting this because I might get this backlash. Like, do you ever do stuff to kind of get that response backlash. or not? Yeah, I mean, I should probably... At some level, I just do it without necessarily thinking as, as much as I should. In that case, I probably was what? looking for the backlash. I didn't quite ex- appreciate the extent of the backlash I was going to have. What did you write? Or- I just wrote, like, just past this... Because I was getting on a train and there were, there were people who were uh, kind of picket line because it was a... Um, uh, strike day and I just said haha getting on a train ignoring the strike or something and uh, I it was clearly you know to some extent trolling in my own regard so therefore you know I've got to take responsibility for the fact that people are going if I if I troll them then they're going to troll me back so I can't um, be unhappy about the consequences do I regret I just hadn't done it probably yeah it's like I didn't get that much out of it uh, compared to the you know barrage of abuse I got in response to it so it's like was this really the kind of right cost-benefit analysis. But, you know, I, I don't want to lean into that too strongly and regret everything I've ever said or done because it, I don't necessarily stand by it 100% or it wasn't my best, it wasn't my best tweet or whatever. It's like, there's no there's no point focusing that much on, on the past, is there? And do you ever find yourself wanting to engage or, like, accessing some rage that's, like, in these arguments or you're just, like... I'm not engaging with these people. It's not worth it. Or that you, yeah, and usually, you don't yeah. want to be that kind of person who... Like, yeah. are you able to understand, like, everyone's a... Per- you know, that's your values, free speech, so, like, yeah. people are allowed to disagree, and, like, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I could... If I really wanted to, I could sue a lot of them for defamation or something, you know, if I if I, if I, I could be bothered, you know, getting a lawyer, identif- trying to identify who they are, and then taking through a court process, and it's like, well, you know, I can't be bothered focusing and spending time or effort on that. Um, most of the time, yeah, I won't reply or engage. There's no there's no point, is there? Um, just leave people to scream at you. So the best thing is um, a kind of like a comment section on an article you've written, and people will start necessarily disagreeing with you. Some often not giving any indication that they've read the article. Um, and you're like, you can go in and comment and respond to them, but it also seems to be like, yeah, well, mine's the article at the top, theirs is the comment at the bottom, I don't want to. I don't feel a need to like um, spend my time and effort engaging with that one person. Sometimes you know, obviously you should, and you should read genuine good criticism. Um, I think it's anti-intellectual just to kind of dismiss all criticism, but there's so much response that you can't possibly deal with it all. 
Like you, you can't necessarily, if someone takes the effort of emailing me or something, it's a bit different because relatively few people are ever going to bother emailing. Um, and if they bring up some interesting points, you know, it's obviously more likely to reply to that. But if it's like a comment or a tweet or something, it's like you can't spend your day, unless you probably shouldn't spend your day responding to all those. And I guess you would know that you spend your time, like this is literally your job to research these things. It's like you have an informed position. You're not just saying some random opinion to like annoy people. Yeah, I mean, even if, even if it isn't an informed position, usually, and I won't say, sometimes Twitter's a bit different, obviously, to kind of a written article. Twitter can sometimes just be like a thought that isn't necessarily well-researched or thought out or developed idea. But usually if I write an article about something, I would have spent at least some time thinking about it and developing the idea. Um, and therefore would hope that it would be of a higher standard and quality that I don't necessarily need to yeah, be defending myself constantly. Um, okay, I think we should wrap up. We should try to get into this we sh- room. We should wrap up. And we've gone for an hour and a half. But last question, is there a book that's had the biggest impact on you? Um, I mean, going back to start, I think Milton Friedman's Free to Choose probably um, had the biggest impact in terms of my political philosophy um in terms of thinking about politics the way people understand the world john Hyatt's righteous mind is an is an excellent read uh, in terms of just why people are inevitably probably not going to come to agree with each other and, and how we prioritize different values and different have different priorities and it's important to understand that not everyone necessarily wants the same thing or sees the world in the same way that you do cool um anything else you want to say where can people find you uh, you can you can follow me on on Twitter that excellent platform um, at Matthew Ash. You can uh, follow the IEA Institute of Economic Affairs, who um, publish and, and promote a lot of my work um, through their website or our newsletter or Facebook page. Amazing! Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.